Welcome to Season 4 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Mandanara's cultural heritage is connected to the Wanarua and Bunjilung people on her mother's side and the Birigaba and Gunjilau on her father's side. She grew up in Redfern, New South Wales with her eight sisters. Mandanara is on several committees and boards including, but not limited to, the Department of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Business and Innovation Reference Committee, the Aboriginal and Islander Independent Community School also known as the Murray School, and the Indigenous Education Research and Employment Committee. Mundanara is the Managing Director and Co-Founder of the Australian Black Card Proprietary Limited, which is a 100% Aboriginal owned and operated business and is certified with Supply Nation. Mundanara co-founded Black Card with Dr. Lilla Watson, who is a respected Aboriginal elder, artist, educator and long-time course developer. I was actually so nervous to release this episode because it's incredibly important. Mandanara is a powerhouse and she is a gift and the work that she does has never been more important and more significant than it is now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this powerful conversation. Mandanara Bales, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. So lovely to talk to you. No worries at all. Thank you very much for the invitation. You are welcome. Where are you phoning in from? I'm on the lands of the Yuggera people, and the Yuggera people are south of the Matawai River. The Matawai River, the original name is the Brisbane River, so now you know that I'm in Brisbane. But there's also the Turrbal people. The Turrbal are north of the river. Yeah. So um, now that you know that I'm phoning in for Brisbane, I'd like to acknowledge the Yuggera and Turrbal people, pay my respects to their elders past and present. And like I said, thank you very much for the invitation to be on your podcast. Oh, beautiful. It's an incredible um, it's an incredible privilege to have you. I've been a, a fan of your work for, for quite a while and hopefully we can unpack some of the amazing, amazing work you're doing. But uh, one of the most important uh, questions for the podcast, what is your coffee order for when I can finally buy you a coffee? Well, I was a soy mocha. It was yep. always a soy mocha. Started training at the gym, so I went to the soy cappuccino. And I was kind of like, you know, hooked on soy. And then a lot of the cafes don't do bonzoi because it's expensive. So now I've gone over to a soy, no, no, an oat cappuccino. That's a week into drinking oat milk. So look, I'd be happy with anything. Just don't give me cow's milk. I just don't do dairy well. Okay, I'll uh, I'll add that to my spreadsheet of uh, coffees for guests. So uh, thank you so much. Um, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received or one of the best pieces? Yeah, definitely, especially being in business with my grandmother's sister. So I want to acknowledge my aunt Lilla Watson, the co-founder of the business that I set up with her, the Black Card. I, um, I receive amazing advice from my aunt all the time. And if I could kind of pick one piece of advice, it would be don't react respond okay. and, and sometimes you need to sleep on it yeah and i've learned literally by reacting <laughs> and not responding yeah. um that it can come back and bite you on the back so but you know what she said to me also 
you don't know what doors were open for you. Yeah. Wow. So that to me, um, I think about it all the time in the heat of a moment when I see racism online and I want to react, I think about Lilla. Wow. That's really beautiful. It's so lovely to uh, to hear that she still has such an impact, uh, the words that she said in your life. That's really, really, really powerful. Um, do you Has that served you well uh, over the years, just to take the time to, to not react? Definitely. And it kind of, um, you feel that you're maturing, you're growing up as an adult, right? But even maturing in terms of in a business sense. So you have to kind of think about how you present yourself, how you conduct yourself as I would just, you know, maybe I don't go to nightclubs anymore, but um, if I do want to have a couple of champagnes with the girls on a Friday afternoon, I'm still aware that I I represent my business. Yeah, I'm in business with my grandmother's sister wow. and I'm also representing my, my family, my people, my community, my culture. So I constantly feel that I'm being like surveillance. Wow. I, I feel that I'm under constant surveillance online and in, in, in the public eye as well. So that to me, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of pressure, right? It's a lot to carry with you every single day. Yeah. You can't even have a champagne without in a Qantas club. And I'm looking around literally in a Qantas club, looking around to see, do I know anyone? And I wonder if they know who I am Yeah, wow. because of the family that I come from. Wow. And is that, is that something that's, uh, that's really important to you to continue your, uh, your family and to represent them well, as you can hear my children screaming in the background, but that's okay. I love it. I love it. I've got eight sisters, I've yeah. got five children, so big families and loudness is, is what's normal for me. Yeah. Um, I would say that my dad literally um, has, has inspired me to continue. And I don't want to say it's his legacy, because my grandmother, Maureen Watson, you'll have to Google her if you don't know. Yeah. My grandmother um, was an amazing um, storyteller, an amazing poet, amazing poet. She was an actress. She did one-woman shows all around the world. Amazing, right? Artist, activist, everything. So my grandmother kind of, she was the one that kind of, I would say, created this kind of, you know, desire or the fire in our bellies that we have as, as Aboriginal people. Wow. So I would say that um, when I think of the big shoes, because my dad passed four years ago, I think they're big shoes to fill, and I don't even want to try and fill them. I want to I want to kind of live my life, and I want to live on my terms. But when you come from a well-known family, it's really hard to say that I'm going to live my life on my terms. Yeah. So I would say that, that I constantly think about um, am I doing the right thing? Mm. And I don't want to use the word proud, right? Would my dad be proud of me? My mum passed 21 years ago as well. Gosh. And my mum raised eight staunch, very proud, independent black women, right? I come from a, a long line of Aboriginal women, especially on my mother's side. Wow. So I would say that even thinking about my mum and um, what she went through uh, in this country, so I think about, yeah, I think about, am I doing my mum? Well, I, am I am I doing the right thing? I keep thinking of the right thing instead of trying to live up to someone else's expectations because mm -hmm. we don't need the extra pressure, right? Because if we don't meet that expectation, then what do we feel like we're failures and do we blame ourselves because yeah, we yeah. 
We haven't been able to live up to their expectation or the expectation that others have of us. So, you know, in terms of being an Aboriginal woman and being raised and socialised in an Aboriginal culture and society, Mm. we're born into a world of obligations. I I would say that a lot of non-Indigenous Australians are born into a world of expectations. Wow. We don't have the expectations. You need to do this and you need to go that. You need to become a lawyer and whatever. You need to marry this person and, and buy this property and whatever. Make sure your kids go to the best schools. It's a non-judgmental society. It's a non-ego-based society and a non-competitive society. Wow, wow. It is such, for me, um, I feel privileged that I've grown up in the Aboriginal society. And I'm navigating the Western world and I'm, I, I feel every day that we're walking in these two worlds, the Aboriginal world and the Western world, and it's like we're code switching to be able to interact with people from this world and then to be who we are in our own world amongst Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities. So that's really hard for me. I would say that just the pressure of having to navigate two worlds and having to constantly describe your culture explain your culture and then justify your cultural identity every time we participate in the western world whether it's you know working or going to school that's challenging and it's exhausting so i've got to keep remembering our way the aboriginal way is very different to the western way and if i stick to our way then i feel that um, i'm staying true to my own values and i'm staying true to my own culture and You've got to think about, you know, your integrity. Absolutely. And my father had very high standards, not expectations. He had high standards. Like one of the rules was not to drink in public. When I worked for my dad for seven years, there was no drinking at any work functions. Um, There was no alcohol at any family functions. So there's standards, right? He set the standard and he said, this is what I expect of you. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel blessed that I come from. An amazing family and yeah my dad definitely um gives me strength to to keep on doing the work that i do yeah i mean that's so beautiful just to hear you talking so um lovingly about your family and and i think it's it's really really incredible to see and um Mandanara, there's so much of your body of work that i want to talk about and we couldn't possibly squeeze it all into our short discussion but I, i'm just really curious what was your um experience like growing up in redfern because you're originally from, uh, you're originally not from uh, uh, where you're phoning from. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a Queenslander. Let's 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 make that clear. <laughs> Do you support New South Wales still? Instead of I bleed, I bleed blue. Yeah, definitely. Possibly. There's blue know. blood running through my veins. Born and raised on the lands of the Gadigal people and Redfern, the block. I go back five generations of women. Wow. Um, I can literally prove my connection to Redfern that goes back to 1840. Gosh. But we're not Gadigal people. That's important. So we're not Gadigal people, my family. We have a historical association with that community, with the Aboriginal community, with the Redfern area. We have a historical association with that area. But um, originally we're from the Hunter Valley. That's my mother's country. Wow. So my mother was forcibly removed under government policy. Her mother was forcibly removed under government policy. Um, we go back four generations of forcible removals, and I'm the fifth generation. And I'm the first generation that had the privilege of growing up with my own 
Aboriginal mother and father. I had the privilege of growing up with my own siblings. I had the privilege of growing up in an Aboriginal community and connected to my Aboriginal family and identity and culture. And Redfern, I guess, um, from that five generations of uh, connection to Redfern, Redfern will always be my home. So my my fondest memories, my childhood memories, are definitely um, goes back to Redfern. Everything goes back to Redfern. The first 11 years of my life, uh, living between Redfern and Waterloo, Redfern was like this vibrant community, like literally thousands of Aboriginal people and families in this one suburb. I didn't realise at the time that the constant surveillance by police, every five minutes, police will drive down Everly Street, go down to the bottom, Hugo Street, up Lewis Street, back up Caroline Street. They literally surveillanced the block every five minutes. And and then next week you see a stolen car come down and police are chasing them. And then you see police running through and raiding houses. like. That was all normal. So I grew up in a in a community where there was a whole lot of social problems. There was a whole lot of domestic violence. There was a whole lot of alcohol and substance abuse and a whole lot of trauma. And I didn't understand at the time that that was my norm, right? That's all that's all I knew. And that's why my dad took us to Queensland in 1990. He took us from from Redfern because he didn't want us growing up in Redfern. He wanted to give us, I guess, a better life, even though we thought that we had the best life ever. We were in a very safe community. To us, that was safe. Being surrounded by all of your family and all of the Aboriginal community, that was the safest place on earth to be. And when we left Redfern, I could tell you now, there was a lot of resentment to my dad, towards my dad, for taking us from the only home that we knew and the only community that we knew. And he brought us to Queensland. And now when I look back, my cousins always say to me, you know, they said it to me once and they've reminded me, they say that yous, in terms of our family in particular, yous were the lucky ones. Wow. Because Uncle Tiger took yous out of Redfern and a lot of my cousins have never, ever left Redfern, ever. Wow. And So, yeah, the, those earlier memories of Redfern was for me family community and um a sense of belonging yeah wow. like everyone knew that you were Kathy Riley's daughter you was Tiger Bowser's daughter wow. everybody knew where you belonged where you lived you were safe you could roam the streets until the sun went down you never felt um you never felt unsafe but a lot of the things that were happening happening around us, I would say that, yeah, I saw some things um, that m- most people would, would never, ever see and a child should never witness or see or experience. And um, a lot of, there's a lot of sad memories with, with Redfern as well. My mother had a heart attack 21 years ago on the block and she was on holidays from Queensland. So she never came home from her holiday. So to me, um, when I go back to Redfern, I think about the casket, you know, the the hearse that drives the the the, yeah. the coffin. Yeah. So every time someone dies in that's from Redfern, we do this lap. We call it the the lap of honor. And everybody from Redfern, they they tell you, make sure you do a lap of honor for me. So 
every funeral, right, we go to the church or wherever, wherever the service is held and then everyone makes their way, like a huge congregation of cars, right? Everyone makes their way to the block and it's like we're, we're, we're sending them off for their last time. So my mum died at 45 and as an Aboriginal woman 20 years ago, her life expectancy was 55. My mum's little sister had a heart attack on the block. She was 30. And my uncle committed suicide at 44. On the same day, my nan uh, took her last breath. So we had a double funeral. So when I think about my early childhood memories there are all happy, my later memories there um, are quite sad. So whenever I go back to Sydney, I drive kind of through Redfern to get to the city to check into my hotel. There's this huge kind of um, like this emotion that just kind of overwhelms me where I'll just have a little cry in the car, have a little cry, get to my hotel, and then i like, all right, I'm here for business. So, yeah. Wow. Mandanara, there's, there's, so, there's so much in that. And I think, like, I am both um, speechless and have goosebumps because it's such a... It's it's such a powerful story. I mean, one of the one of the questions I did have to ask for you, ask you, and it was a um a, a TED self uh, sorry TEDx Southbank Women event, and it said, "I come from a culture where most of you are increasing your life expectancy. This is not the case for my culture." Um, when I watched that, I paused the video and I I burst into tears because I had never. I mean, as a dad, when I originally saw that, originally when I had just become a dad, that's just not my wish for my kids. My wish for my kids is that they would be better and stronger and more independent and more uh, vibrant than I could ever be. Um, but that's not always the case for, for your people. Would you mind spending a few moments talking about that? And, and I couldn't possibly do that justice, so I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well... I would say that, um, you know, we make up 3% of the total Australian population. And when you break the 3% down, 50% of our population, the Indigenous population, are under the age of 25. And 40% of those are under the age of 15. So literally, we have a third of our population enrolled in school, a third of the Indigenous population are school children. So when you look at the other 1.5% that are on average over the age of 18, we make up 30% of the prison population. So then you've kind of got to take that percentage out of the 1.5% of the adult population because they're sitting in prison. Like who do we have left in terms of people like myself that can do the work that I do to kind of educate mainstream Australians about this country, the history of this country, and why Aboriginal people are in the situation or the position that we're in today in terms of life expectancy. Let's focus on life, life expectancy. So half the population are children, whereas in half of the mainstream Australian population are over the age of 55. For a white Australian female, your life expectancy is 92 in this country. An Aboriginal man in an Aboriginal community in New South Wales called Wilkenya, the median age is 39 years old. So what does that mean if you've got half the population, half of our society under the age of 15, basically, 
and people are barely reaching their 40th birthdays, 50th birthdays, if they're lucky, what that says is we've got a whole society of young people growing up without any grandparents. So my tiger lily, the youngest of my five, um, when I was speaking on a Zoom delivering training the other day, she came in and she sat next to me. She just sat on my lap. And when I started talking about grandparents, she literally, and I'm on Zoom and I'm delivering training, you know what she said to me? She said, Mum, what is a grandparent? She has no concept of grandparent. And I'm delivering training, right? Like I think it was ANZ Bank or Combank. I'm in this corporate session. My daughter just comes into my office, sits on my lap, and as you do, you just keep going with the flow. And then, bang, it was the session where I'm unpacking statistics and life expectancy in particular, and she's sitting on my lap and she's listening. And I didn't think she'd even understand what I'm talking about, that she'll just sit there and give me a cuddle. And she says to me, what is a grandparent? And I could see the whole screen of people and half of them I could see were crying, right? And I stopped and I had this conversation with her in a live workshop. And I said, well, you know my dad, Poppy Tiger, who you're named after. You know your middle name, Catherine. That's my mum. That's your grandmother. And she says, I don't know her. And I said, no, you don't. You didn't get to meet her. She says, well, why didn't I get to meet her? And I'm like, literally, I'm delivering a workshop and I'm having a conversation that I've never had with my daughter before. It absolutely breaks my heart to talk about it, but it's something that most Australians take for granted. The fact that I don't have, I don't have a mother or a father alive, so I'm an orphan, and I don't dwell on it because I'm not the only Aboriginal person that doesn't have parents alive at 38 years old. So that's that's common. It's not uncommon. It's common. It's normal. And it's normal not to have your grandparents alive. And if you did have grandparents, you didn't have them for long. But now I can see my children. I feel that they've been robbed of that. And that connection with our grandparents. I grew up with two grandmothers. I was lucky to have two grandmothers, my mum's mum and my dad's mum. And I had my, yeah, I think I was in my early 20s. Yeah, early 20s when, when the first grandmother died and late 20s when the second grandmother died. So I, I would say that, um, yeah, it, it's hard to even, it's hard to even talk to them about why people are dying so young. That's the constant topic of conversation in our house. It's funerals because we're constantly going to so many funerals. People who have experienced trauma and when we talk about five generations on my side, on my mother's side, of forcible removals of stolen children, I've inherited six generations of trauma, unknowingly inherited that. My mother unknowingly passed her trauma on to me because the science says that trauma is in the memory of the child's DNA. So I didn't even know that I've been impacted by my mother's trauma and she was impacted by her mother's trauma. So... If you've experienced trauma, you're 15 times more likely to commit suicide. Aboriginal youth are the highest than anywhere else in the world to commit suicide. One Aboriginal child every single week in this country commits suicide every week. 
I've had eight children, and when I say I've had, I'm on the board of a school here in Brisbane, a school that I graduated from, the Murray School. And in the last 10 years alone, we've had eight children commit suicide from one school. And why I mention that or highlight that is because not one of those children was newsworthy in terms of mainstream media. But a young white Australian girl, Dolly, commits suicide, the daughter of a farmer, a 14-year-old girl from the country. And most of this country will remember the story of that young girl. But you know what? The, the amount of funerals that we go to, I would say 95% of the funerals are all suicide. 95% of the funerals are suicide and 99% are under the age of 25. That to me breaks my heart, right, that we go to so many funerals and they're children. And when my children say to me, you know, mum, when are you, like, when are you going to die? Like they ask me like all the time, are you going to die? So if we go to a funeral, the topic of conversation for about a month is death to the point where they will get so upset and emotional that now they're distraught at the thought of me not being here. And like I I can't even have those conversations because I, I get so emotional. I start thinking of my dad. I start thinking of my grandmothers. I start thinking of my mum. I start thinking of um, my mum's brother, my mum's sister, all the people I've buried that are very close to me. Um, I keep thinking about them. So I don't I don't like talking about funerals. We refer to it as sorry business. So when an Aboriginal person says they're sorry business and that's why this person's not at work today or these kids are not at school this week because of sorry business, the constant grief, loss and trauma to me is what holds us back from reaching our full potential. And to me, I think if we could understand the impacts of colonialism, the impacts of past government policies, and then the impacts in terms of the trauma now that Aboriginal people are experiencing and dealing with, maybe we'd be able to figure out how we could best support that person or that individual, wow. you know, in a workplace, in a school setting, how do we support someone who is constantly experiencing so much trauma, so much grief and loss? Gosh, um, I'm like, I'm getting emotional here. Like I just, like, I couldn't imagine having that conversation with my kids. So my kids asking me that. And, and I, um, and we were talking just before um, we hit record that, that, that my kids are the, the first Australian born uh, people in our family my wife's south african and i was born in england and i remember sitting in a um a, a history lesson in um in nottingham which is a school that i went to uh, in the united kingdom and we were learning about australian history and not once was um aboriginal culture mentioned not once we learned about um cook and everyone coming and doing all the horrific things that they did and not once did we hear about about the richness of indigenous or Aboriginal civilization and culture. And when I came to Australia, like I'm, I'm a teacher 
like I teach little kids and we weren't taught in university. Um, we weren't, we definitely weren't taught in high school. Um, and so for me, I'm on a, I'm on a journey of trying to figure out what on earth happened in this country, the country that I call home. And I, and I'm so, I'm so grateful for it, but I'm also aware that I'm a, I'm a visitor in a country that, that was not my birthplace. And how do we even, I, I'm, I'm speechless, which if you ask my wife, it does take a lot to get me there. Um, but how on earth do we even, as a country, start to move forward? What do we, what do we tell our yeah. kids? What do we, what do we do? Because you can't deny what happened. No, we need to tell the kids. We need to tell our children. We need to tell them the truth. Yeah. Because the truth has been denied to the citizens of this country by past governments, right? I believe that that is a huge disservice. It's a huge injustice mm. to citizens of this country that they were denied the true history of this country. So truth-telling, truth-telling must be, like it's fundamental in terms of, of trying to achieve reconciliation. Who are we reconciling with? What are we reconciling about? That's why a lot of mainstream Australians have the opinion, right, that they're not responsible for past people's actions or past governments' actions. How do, how do they know that their families weren't part of the massacres, the murders, the slaughtering, the raping of women, the slavery, the fact that my nan worked on a farm, a cattle farm, cattle station in, in regional New South Wales. She was 10 years old and sent out to work by the New South Wales government. The fact that she was sent out to work at 10 and nobody was there to protect her when she was abused, that nobody was there um, I, just, I just I think about my nan because I've got a 10-year-old, you know, I've got two little boys, one's 10 and one's nine, and I just can't even think of the thought, like literally of them being forced to work, but not only forced to work, but to be taken from their families and sent so far away from their families with, with strangers, with people that they have never seen in their lives. They don't know them from a bar of soap. And all of a sudden, they're meant to, you know, my nan said that she went to Kudamundra Girls' Home and then she was sent to Bomaderry Girls' Home in New South Wales and she'd done her domestic training and they basically made you work like for 18 hours a day in the institution, right? Then you are employable and sent out to work. My nan ran away so many times because I've got all of the archives. I've got my nan's file now. She was mischievous. She was rebellious. She didn't, um, and she, 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 in the end, 
she just wouldn't have a bar of it in terms of the, the treatment. Um, my nan literally, the first employer that she went to, they tied her um, with a chain on the front deck of the house. They tied her up like a dog so that she wouldn't run away. So this is what they used to say. They would tame the Aboriginal, the native tame them. So tie them up so they don't run away. Um, she wasn't allowed to sleep in the house, right, because she was Aboriginal. This is a 10-year-old little girl. So the living conditions, right, the, the, the dogs got treated way better than, than these little girls from my nan's experience. She ran away, and I've got a letter. I'll share this with you one day. She ran away from this one employer that night because she refused to eat the meal that was separate to the meal that was cooked for the rest of the family. You know, that was my nan. By that stage, she was 12 years old then, and um, she kept running away, running away and running away until she just became an absolute pain in their backsides. So the authorities in New South Wales, I think she was like 18 and they had enough of her. So they deleted her. So she was literally not in the system anymore. So if a police officer pulled her up in Sydney, um, there was no, she wasn't an escapee. Every Aboriginal child that was part of the stolen generation was immediately given a criminal history. They were actually um, labelled inmates. My nan was an inmate. So my nan basically said that she ran away so many times and um, finally she was a free woman and she assumed the identity of an Indian woman. And as an Indian woman, she got to work where she wanted to work. She got her money in her own bank account. She had never had money from all of the work that she had done as a domestic. She never received a cent. So she got to drink at the pub with her girlfriends after work. As a black person in the 1940s in Sydney, there were segregation laws back then, right? So as an Indian woman, she was accepted in society. She got to marry uh, my mum's dad, uh, an Irishman. So she married freely, lived freely, worked freely. And she got to keep her children. So my nan did what she had to do to survive. And at the cost of cutting all connections to her family. So that moment she denied her Aboriginality and she denied her Aboriginality until she died. The, you know, being Aboriginal was like a dirty word. You never mentioned it to her. So she got to keep her children until a knock on the door, Matt. And my uncle who passed two years ago, he said to me, he said, I still remember the day that they knocked on the door. So knock, knock, knock on the door. He answers the door. My nan comes up to the door. He was the eldest of five children. And he said he was about 10 or 12 years old. And the exact words of the authorities was, Patsy, we've caught up with you. Because remember, she was under the legislation where every aspect of her life was controlled by the state. And then she disappeared. She flew under the radar. 
married, worked, raised her children. And then the knock on the door. So someone dobbed her in. The authorities found out that she was the same Patsy Miller. And um, my nan's my nan's response to them when they said, you know why we're here, she said, can I please come and say goodbye? What a, Mandanara, what an incredibly brave and strong and courageous woman. I, I couldn't imagine a 10-year-old having the courage to be able to do that. And My nan asked if she could come oh. and say goodbye to her children, knowing that what she experienced, they were probably going to experience the same abuse. And knowing that she can't protect them, they actually let her go with her. She jumped in the car with her kids. And she never forgave herself. She never forgave herself. And my mum never forgave my nan, my uncles never forgave her. She had to live with that guilt for the rest of her life. There's a lot of our grandmothers that are still alive, that are still carrying the trauma. I'm searching for their children. And that to me breaks my heart that that the majority of this country, mainstream Australians, have no idea what we have been through and what we continue to go through as Aboriginal people in 2021. The impact of my mother being taken from her mother, I feel the pain every single day. I think about it, the fact that I don't have my mother alive. And I think Think about it even more so because I am a mother. And the thought that my children can be taken from me still today. Don't be fooled. The stolen generations haven't ended. There's no policy in place, but there's over 100,000 Aboriginal children living in out-of-home care in this country in 2021. There's a lot of mothers missing from their families because they're sitting in prison. But the fact that in WA, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet, literally the most incarcerated people on earth. There's been a 248% increase of Aboriginal women alone being locked up since 1991. 80% of those women are mothers or carers of children. In Western Australia, a lot of the prisoners, a lot of our people, Aboriginal people that are sitting in prison, are sitting in prison due to unpaid fines. Not because they're criminals. Their children are taken from them because they're sitting in prison paying off a fine because they don't have the financial means that most Australians do to pay a fine. 
One in 10 Indigenous people are financially secure. One in 10. So there's a whole lot of mis like misconceptions, misunderstandings um, when it comes to Aboriginal people and Aboriginal society. And um, I believe that if we could set the record straight once and for all through a formal truth-telling commission, just like in South Africa, but we want truth and justice. South Africa went for truth and reconciliation. We want truth and we want justice. And then reconciliation, in my opinion, will sort itself out if we get the first two right. We want reparations as well. We do. We want reparations. And if we get compensation, well, that's a bonus. But at the Truth Commission in Victoria in 2022, I'm really excited to see what comes out of this for the first in Australia's history, the first time ever, um, hopefully, white Australian families will come to the Truth Commission and share their family history and how they have benefited yeah. from the dispossession of our lands. They've benefited. And I think that really needs to be understood because there's no generational wealth that was ever passed down. The wealth was created, literally. My nan worked her butt off. Yeah. She had no choice. Her mother worked her whole life. My great-great-grandmother worked her entire life and was not paid one cent. So they couldn't buy any property, right, because up until 1972 we were still flora and fauna. So you couldn't buy property as an Aboriginal person. Albert Namajira, the first Aboriginal person in the 1950s to be granted partial citizenship, a famous, famous artist, he was only granted partial citizenship so the Australian government could tax the sale of his artwork. But he was denied um, the right to buy property. He wanted to buy a cattle station and just outside of Hermansburg in the Northern Territory. And as an Aboriginal man, he couldn't buy a business. But he said, no, I've got my piece of paper. I'm a citizen. And they said, no, 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 that means nothing. Wow. That needs to be told, right? These stories need to be told. They need to be shared. And hopefully that will actually bring us together in this country we hopefully will become a more unified or united country. Um, but there's a whole lot of healing that needs to happen. You know what I mean? There's a whole lot of unresolved business in this country in terms of the history of this country. The fact that my ancestors, they survived the invasion of this country. Basically, Holocaust survivors, literally, the treatment of Aboriginal people on those reserves, the reservations, the, the reserves and the missions were no different to the treatment of people in those concentration camps, literally. So how do we literally get to a point where we can own our history in this country instead of the continuous denial of our history? 
you know, like Governor Lachlan Macquarie, let's start with this. Governor Lachlan Macquarie in 1816, the first governor of New South Wales, his orders to his soldiers, and I quote, to capture the natives and to make them prisoners of war. And if they are to resist, to shoot them and then to hang their bodies near where they fall in the most conspicuous places as to strike terror into the hearts of the surviving natives. That was in 1816. Macquarie's got a bank, a university named after him. Port Macquarie, Lake Macquarie, Macquarie Fields. He was a mass murderer. That's a man that we hold in high regard in Australia, the first governor. He was called for on Kalkadoon country in Mount Isa in Queensland. They called for Lachlan Macquarie and his soldiers to come up to Queensland and overnight Lachlan Macquarie wiped out the Kalkadoon men overnight. The history of Battle Mountain. Like, how did Townsville get its name? After a slave owner, Robert Townsend. The fact that there are murdering creeks, there's 17 murdering creeks in Australia. I live 20 minutes down the road, literally outside of Noosa, in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast, is murdering creek. As you drive up the main highway, you will see murdering creek road. On the Gold Coast, at the back of Burley Heads, you've got Blackshoot Creek. It's a massacre site. In Coffs Harbour, you've got Red Rock. That's a massacre site. At um, Mount Cutha, here in Brisbane, you've got Slaughter Falls. It's a massacre site. How on earth does that? How on earth does that make you feel when you see um, universities named after? Governor Macquarie, when you see creeks named after these horrific atrocities, does that does that make you feel optimistic that we're making progress, or does it make you feel angry, or how? Like I wouldn't know what to do with that. It could because for me, if I saw that, it's it would hard. be as if my people are getting mocked. It's hard. Yeah, it's literally really hard to even process that that the violence that they endured. But it's celebrated by being named after them. Like, yeah, there was nearly complete genocide in this country. There was a policy to wipe us out. There was a policy to wipe us out, to, to exterminate us, right, literally. Um, and makes me sad that the, just the continuous denial of the, the horrific history of this country um, people just want to sweep it under the carpet and say, you know what, that happened 200 years ago. I don't care how long ago it happened. The fact that we celebrate Anzac Day, the fact that we just celebrated 100 years of Gallipoli. So there's double standards in this country. There's double standards on what we want to acknowledge and what we want to celebrate and what we want to memorialise and what we want to forget about. Not just forget about it, but just like complete denial that it even happened. You know, why? Why? I don't know. I, I don't know why Australians and white Australians in particular 
why don't you want to know your own history in your country? If this is your country and you call this place home, then you have, a, you have a responsibility to know your history. You have an obligation to learn your history. Your children have a right to know the history of this country. So I would say that every one of us that are parents, um, you know, we have a responsibility and we need to see this as, our, like as a personal responsibility. I'm going to do this so that, you know, my children um, are not sitting here having these conversations in 30 years' time, right? Yeah. Um, Mandanara, when you think of when someone says the, the term Australian, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't identify. I don't identify as Australian. Yeah. Um, I was at the flag, you know, the, the Olympic Games opening night, and Paddy Mills, a very proud Indigenous man um, that plays in the NBA. He was our flag bearer, right? I'm sitting at the house of Paddy Mills's family, his mum and dad, Uncle Benny, and Annie Yvonne, with his wife Alyssa, right? I'm with them, with my family. And Channel 7 are there capturing this moment because it's a moment in history, right? There's an Indigenous man leading the Australian team out at the Olympics, probably the first in our history, right? Anyways, I'm sitting there, Channel 7, Channel 9, and the green and gold, it's all decorated, and a, and a, a jar of little flags, Aussie flags, came around. But I'm watching the big screen TV, and as I grabbed the jar and I looked and I was like, what the heck? My husband laughed and the other black fellas in the room started laughing. And I was like, oh, get that away from me. But the look of my face was priceless. I didn't see it, but I could only imagine. Um, the flag just reminds me of the invasion of this country. That flag reminds me of the, of the violence that my people endured. So it doesn't sit right with me, that flag because it was under that flag that they did what they did to my people. And to me, I guess, I've never, ever been accepted. I don't feel like I'm accepted in this country. I don't feel like I'm part of this country. Um, a lot of Aboriginal people describe the feeling of like being a refugee within our own country. And that's so crazy because if anyone has right to identify with this wonderful diverse land it would be you and your people but it's yeah well we can, shocking we can definitely prove that we've been here for at least 140,000 years right the oldest continuous surviving culture in world history wow and I celebrate that I love the fact that I belong to the oldest living culture in world history that to me um, fills my heart with a lot of joy. I love it. But I'm raising children now on the Sunshine Coast. And um, one of the rules is that I'm not to wear any red, black and yellow when I pick them up from school. Not to wear anything um, that kind of, kind of gives us up that we're an Aboriginal family. So my children now are struggling with... Um, identifying as Aboriginal in their new school. Wow. Wow. 
So even though I'm very proud of my culture and I come from a politically active family, we've been at the forefront of our kind of political movement since the 1960s, I've inherited that and I will celebrate that and I have to continue the fight for my family and for my people and for this country, for my children and for the future generations. Um, But to have my kids kind of tell me that they're embarrassed if I wear, uh, you know, a clothing, the gap always was always will be T-shirt or any merch where where I'm representing an Indigenous business, um, it makes my children feel, feel, feel ashamed. Gosh, how do you feel when you see the Aboriginal flag? Uh, yeah, I. it's a flag that makes me feel that I do belong in this country. It makes me feel proud that I belong to the oldest living race in world history. Like that, that flag um, symbolises a lot for me. It symbolises strength. It symbolises resilience. Um, and also this love that we have, this love that we have for our country, the love that we have for our community, our families, the love that we have for our culture, um, that flag means a lot to me. And I just don't wear, I just, I have to respect my children and, and not wear anything Aboriginal when I pick them up from school. So maybe I just don't pick them up anymore. Because to me, you know, I'm not kind of, I'm not living my truths. And my dad would be rolling in his grave if, if, if he knew that I was thinking twice about whether or not I should have my Aboriginal earrings on today or whether, you know, the fact that I feel, you know, like I make people uncomfortable when I wear anything Aboriginal. I feel it. Don't you worry. I feel it. And my children feel it. And that's why they, you know, told me, Gosh. don't wear that when you pick us up. Oh, wow. Mandanara, another one of your quotes that I, I I paused when I heard it and burst into tears. I didn't know someone could cry so much in such a short TED Talk. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, you say that the most inhumane things have been done to our people and yet we, we are still here. We are still welcoming people to our country and we are still willing to share it with everybody and as I said as someone who calls Australia home um, I've been here 20 years which is a lot less than your people have Um, every single person that I've spoken to every single original person has been so kind and so generous and so welcoming to this incredible country and I I don't know how you do it because I would be seething and angry and wanting to fight and wanting to and I'm sure you do but 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 there's so many people that have been through the atrocities that you have but for some reason you seem to be different and you seem to be passionate about making a difference and how on earth do you do it how do you keep going how do you keep the fight how do you how do you not become respectfully one of those statistics that you talked about before I was raised by the most, just the most amazing people. Like my mother and father were just the best parents that you could ever ask for. And the fact that they raised us 
as very proud Aboriginal kids and gave us Aboriginal names to, to be proud of. Just thinking of what they went through gives me strength every day to continue the work that needs to be done in this country so that my children have it just that little bit easier than what my experience has been like, what my parents' experience was like. And the fact that I am a mother, I've got to be the example for my children, and that's important to me. And I've got to continue the Aboriginal way, like my grandmother used to always say, to see the good in people, to see the good of people, to speak good of people. She was such an amazing woman, my grandmother Maureen, such an amazing woman. Um, and I, I believe that, you know, we've got this great understanding. Aboriginal people have this great understanding of what it means to be human. So treat people the way you want to be treated. And not to judge people. We are, we, we are literally a non-judgmental society. Not to judge people, not to assume that you know what that person has been through unless you've walked in their shoes, right? My grandmother used to always remind us. Um, but this kindness my grandmother had, um, she always used to say when, when people are being racist towards you, just smile at them and kill them with kindness. And that's really hard sometimes. Wow. But I did it the other day. I was abused, racially abused in front of my children outside of a football game on Saturday. And I went to Instagram Live for the first time ever. I did a live. I didn't even know how to end it. Yeah. And I just was racially abused by these two older white men and in front of my kids. And I, I smiled at those two men and I kept walking. And my 11-year-old Lameki, he said to me, Mum, did, did they just swear at Tiger Lily? So Tiger Lily was walking in front of me and my 11-year-old was walking behind me and the rest of the kids were still at the game. We left 10 minutes early to get to the car. Yeah. Anyhow, my 11-year-old said, were they swearing at Tiger Lily? They're in their like late 50s, early 60s. Who does that? Who does and I, that? Said, I said, no, no, they wasn't swearing at her. They were, they were swearing at me. And he was like, what? So he's looking back at them and he's looking at me and he's like, well, why did you let them? Why didn't you say something to them? And I said to them, Lameki, I've got my children with me. I'm not going to make a scene here because then you're going to witness that. Tiger Lily's going to witness that. What if the police get called and I'm the Aboriginal person because... <laughs> I'm probably going to see, be seen as the, as the perpetrator, right? I said to Lameki straight away, I said, don't lower yourselves to their standards. When you experience what I just experienced then, I said, we're better than that. That's why I kept on walking. And then he said to me, but, Mum, why did they swear at you? And I was wearing it, always was, and on the back it said always will be, an Aboriginal T-shirt, right? 
And it's the latest merchandise, the latest merchandise from Clothing the Gap. So I've got to show you now because it's just my favourite T-shirt. I will. Uh, that's that's a, me at that, the football game. That's, an, that's awesome. I love, I love it, right? Anyways, starting conversations through fashion, that's, that's what Clothing the Gap is so good at doing. So if you're not following them on Instagram, you've got to follow them. I will Come put, up, um, I'll put all of those links, Mandanara, in the, the show notes so people can get access. It looks amazing. Yeah, well, I literally just said to Lameki that, you know, it was my shirt, that they read my shirt and they wasn't happy with the truth. And um, he literally responded with mum. He, he says this to me, he goes, mum, I hate when you wear this stuff. Why do you have to embarrass me? He's like, it's embarrassing. Stop wearing this stuff when we go out. And I just said to him, you know what, Lameki, I'm sorry you feel that way and I'm sorry that I make you feel like that. I said, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like this. I should be able to wear my colours proudly without being abused in the street. So we went to Instagram and me and him had a conversation to share with people. I wish I'd seen that. How it's still on my page. You've got to go to my page. We'll go check it out. Miss Bales83. That's my 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 personal page. And I don't mind if you follow me if, if anyone wants to add me. But thought that it was important in that moment to have an open conversation with my son and I think that he's old enough to have the conversation with because he's now seeing it and experiencing it and trying to figure out why this is all happening um but yeah I, I would say that children shouldn't have to experience this right they shouldn't have to to experience or witnessing their parents being racially abused. No. But, yeah, look, kill them with kindness. That's what I did. I smiled. And later on my kids said to me, the older kids are 19 and 16, they didn't even know what had happened. So I jumped in the car, they jumped in the car, and we drove home, and I never mentioned a word because I didn't want it to wreck the the family time that we had together at the, at the Rabbitohs game is the first Rabbitohs game we've been to as a family, all seven of us, in like three years. And to live on the Sunshine Coast and have the Rabbitohs here on the Sunshine Coast in our neighbourhood, to me that was like, you know, it's, it's, it's another memory that we're creating for our kids. So I wasn't going to let those two people ruin our day. Mandanai, you you just brushed over something which I, I have to ask you about. And I um I'm a a white male. When I call the police, I know that they're probably gonna take my side of the story. And I I just couldn't I just couldn't imagine and I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that. I, I, I couldn't imagine being in that position where you know that if if you call people that are supposed to be there to protect and to help and uphold the law, that the the likelihood is that you will be, your opinion won't be valid. I, I couldn't imagine what that's like. Not only that, Matthew, but you'll probably be arrested. And I'm talking from my own experience now. I was in a taxi with two of my friends, right? In a taxi, currently leaving a nightclub, but I'd been in that cab line for like hours and hours and it's like 20 years ago. Jumped in the taxi. So you start having this conversation. The taxi driver 
was a, a visitor to this country. He wasn't European. He was, he was another ethnicity. Anyhow, when he got the gist that we were Aboriginal, he stopped the car and tried to kick us out. And I said to him, no, 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 we just lined up two hours. You're, you're going to take us home. And he goes, no, I'm not. Get out of the taxi and you need to pay me. I said, we're not getting out of your taxi because now this is discriminating. You are discriminating against us because we're Aboriginal. I said, drive me to the police station in Adelaide Street in Brisbane. Drive me to the police station. I am now going to lodge a complaint against you. He drove me to the police station. I go, it's just 5 a.m., right? I click on the buzzer. No one's coming down. No one's coming down. It's a big headquarters. He waves down a police car passing. He waves them down and he says to them, my money has just been stolen. My mobile phone has just been stolen by her points to me and I turn around and I said I didn't steal your phone I haven't stolen your money check me I said I asked you to drive me to the police station and all of a sudden within about five minutes now there's five or six police cars they're all all men not one female they're all there now and literally I'm surrounded by all these men and he said to me she has stolen my money the other two passengers are in the back of the taxi. They stayed in the cab and I walked to press the buzzer to get the police. Now I'm on the road and all of a sudden this police officer says to me, you're under arrest. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, you cannot prove that I have done anything. Where's your proof? Anyways, now I'm literally, I'm being manhandled by about six policemen, literally. And I'm like fighting them off because I can't believe that I am now, I'm like literally being handcuffed. Then they literally threw me to the ground. I'm face down into the ground with like six men on top of me. I've got my hands behind my back, so I'm now handcuffed. And they pick me up by my arms. They pick me up and literally threw me head into the paddy wagon, threw me. And all I remember, and I, I had definitely been drinking, right? All I would remember is when they slammed the door, my legs were still hanging out. So they slammed the door on my ankle. And I remember screaming, yeah, like I swore. I screamed out the F word. So I was charged. I was charged with offensive language. And I was like, but I, I didn't swear First, I swore when I was arrested, I was charged with contravene direction because I wasn't um, cooperating. I was charged with being a public nuisance because I had now started to, you know, create a bit of a scene in public. I was charged with um, public drunkenness, right? But I was... I was the victim that had been discriminated against and now I'm in the watch house. So, Matthew, I've got six mug shots in the Brisbane watch house, six. And every time I've applied for a job, every time I've applied for a job, as soon as I see the criminal history, have you ever been convicted, I immediately, I, I decide in that moment that's not the job for me. Because I've got to disclose a criminal history 
that is not a true representation of who I am. So six times I've been arrested um, for being drunk in public, offensive language, public nuisance, contravene direction. It's the same charges. So it looks like I can't handle my alcohol. It looks like that I'm a repeat criminal, a repetitive offender, because I've been to the watch house so many times. Um, but not once, you know, it's racial profiling been part of the conversation of while I've been arrested. I've been targeted so many times, literally driving a car with an Aboriginal flag sticker on it. You will get pulled over if you do. You try it. I am not kidding. Do a social experiment. Have the Aboriginal flags a sticker on the back of your car and you tell me in one month how many times that you were pulled over by the police. Right. Actually, just the sticker on your car alone. Well, have you pulled over? And that once you're pulled over, right, if you literally talk back or in a smart, sarcastic way, you'll find yourself arrested within seconds because that's been my experience. I don't want to cooperate. I'm not under suspicion. I haven't broken the law. Why do I have to give you my name and my address and my date of birth? Mm. That has found me in, in trouble. With the law. Wow. Mandina, I, I can't even, I, I can't even begin to imagine, like I said, as someone who has never experienced any, no one has ever told me I can't do anything because of the way I look, because of what I believe, because of where I'm from. Far from it. I think embarrassingly doors have been opened to me because of who I am, where I'm from, what I look like, the color of my skin. And, and, but I think these conversations are so, so important. And I'm so grateful that um, I'm so grateful for your honesty and your transparency. And it's, it's such a great, what you are doing is such a great testimony to um, indigenous people that we don't have to be, we're not a victim of what has happened to us, but yet you're strong, you're powerful, you're create, uh, courageous. And so I'm so grateful for what you are doing and I'm so embarrassed how little I know about this incredible country, which I now call home. And what are some of the things that, and there are so many, we'll have to do around two or something because I have scribbled all over this piece of paper in front of me, but what are some of the things that you are, and I'm conscious of your time as well. Um, what are some of the things that, that you're doing uh, with Black Card, with Black Magic Woman and the incredible things that you're doing to really try and, champion Aboriginal people. What are some of the projects that you're, you're doing at the moment? Yeah, well, I guess Black Card is like my, my main calling, right? Black yeah. Card um, gives me the freedom to work on other projects. I sit on five boards as well. Um, so I contribute a lot, a lot of volunteering in my community, but Black Card gives me the freedom to then volunteer and give back to my community. So delivering training, I, I'm online every single day. I constantly am delivering training. Um, so I would say that the more education that we can, you know, give to anybody and, and everybody, whether they're Australian or not, um, that wants to learn about the oldest living culture in world history, how we actually ran an entire country, for tens of thousands of years without the need for armies, without the need for prisons, yeah. 
without the need for police and we never invaded our neighbours. So how did we have an efficient, sustainable society that lasted us eons of time? That's my passion. So I turn up every day to share all of the knowledge that comes directly from this land um, that has been the success of our, not our survival, because we, it's like we survived colonialism and we survived the massacres and we survived the assimilation and stolen generation policies. So I don't want to talk about how we survived, how we thrived in this country, how we lived through two ice ages. Yeah. That to me is what I love doing. I love I love the work that I do at Black Card. If you want to call it cultural education or cultural capability, Black Card training. So if you want to engage with Black Card, we've got public workshops that you can register as an individual. And if you're a student, send me an email and I'll make sure that we waive the fees for you to make it possible for you to um, participate in our training. Amazing. Black Magic Woman that's an incredible it's a platform. podcast. It is like, you love it? it gets me fired up in the car, like in Sydney traffic. I'm listening to it go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It is incredible. I'll cut you off. It's I amazing. Love, it's amazing. No, I, I, I love the fact that, you know, because I come from amazing people yeah. and an amazing family that I'll tell you now, Matthew, I, I'm privileged. I definitely am privileged, right? That I could pick up the phone and I could talk to anyone, literally. I could talk to anyone in the country, especially if they're Indigenous. If it's a minister like Ken White, I could ring his people up and say, I would like to talk to the minister. And he would say, and he has said, what are you to Tiger Bales? And then I said, that was my father. Oh, look, Straight you know, in. we have to talk. You know, of course, Mandanara, I'll give you an hour of my time. Do you want two hours of my time? So I feel privileged right. and I've, I've benefited and I am. I do benefit from the relationships that my father had with a lot of people, especially non-Indigenous people uh, that are politicians and people of influence, right? So the podcast gives people, like it's like a platform that I use to amplify Indigenous voices, that I get to bring Aboriginal people to you, into your homes, into your cars, to share their stories, whether they're in business or whether they're, they've achieved anything, like it doesn't matter. Their stories are worthy. And I want to make sure that anyone that I talk to where I go, oh, my God, I need to have you on my podcast. So the podcast for me is like Amazing. that is like my escape from Black Card because Black Card is exhausting, right? It's like every day I, I turn up and I feel emotional and I feel like I've got this you know I feel a lot of pressure in this sense like a huge kind of responsibility to do the heavy lifting I just feel that and I don't want to feel that every day it it kind of weighs me down Mm. so that the podcast kind of it's like where I feel uplifted and I feel like um, every conversation I have with people like yourself tonight every conversation I have with people I walk away from that and it's like um, my spirit is like re-energized. Yeah. I feel that my cup is now full from a day of being drained <laughs> in delivering training and engaging with people that sometimes I feel like they're just kind of draining every bit of energy out of me. Then I, you know, do a workshop and then I go straight into a studio and I'm just like back to like, wow, now 
you know, I know why I do what I do and I've got to keep doing what I do because people that I've had on my podcast, more and more people are hearing more successful Aboriginal people. They're engaging with more Aboriginal businesses and hopefully they're feeling more and more inspired by hearing those stories. It's Mandanara, it's it's incredible. I, I've been trying to make my way through the body of your work, and it's you keep adding more episodes, and I just it's it's there's, there's so much there. And can I can I just personally thank you? I um I went to university at Sydney uh, with my beautiful wife, who you know, and every single day we we walk past Everly Street every day. Um, it's I actually feel at home at getting out of Redfern Station and walking down to Sydney Uni, and I. I had no idea. Uh, embarrassingly, I had a perception of Aboriginal culture. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing to, for so many people, myself included, to really redefine what that is. I mean, I only saw snippets. I saw people have their handbags stolen and people getting shouted at. And, and I, had, I just hadn't taken the time to, to even wonder why that was the case and what had happened in some of these incredible people's family. And, it was, and I was talking to this Aboriginal gentleman and he was one of the kindest, most wonderful people I've ever met. He was asking me about my studies and talking to me about what I, what, what country I was from. And, and I just thought for the first time, I, I just realized the, just the incredible beauty in that area, especially at Redfern and, and in your people. And, and I wanted to thank you for that and the work you're doing. And I, I have so much to learn um, and I can't wait to get a reading list or something from you where I can start to learn the actual history and the, and the proper culture of this, of this beautiful country. Which, you're, making, you're making me miss. Oh, it's, it's just, it, it's so, like my wife I miss, and I. I miss my family. I miss Redfern. Yeah. I and miss my community. I miss gold. everything. Yeah. And you know what? My sister just moved into Everly Street. Wow. I get to go back to Everly Street now and I get wow. to sit in her house. Her children are now the block kids. They're the, they are literally, they're now the sixth generation growing up in Redfern. So you know what? Um, it's the next generation now that are coming Literally. back to Redfern. And we're bringing those memories or we're kind of making new memories, right, back in Redfern. So you're making me miss Redfern. I was meant to be there yesterday. But I just want to say, Matthew, if we build a relationship like we have and we can just share our stories and most importantly see see us as human beings, just to see us as human beings first and foremost, Take us out of the box. Oh, she's Aboriginal. She's an Aboriginal businesswoman. Oh, she's my Aboriginal friend. She's an Indigenous podcaster. Like, we don't want to be in the box because the box is limiting us Mm. and it limits people's views of us, of what we can achieve and what we can, you know, literally and how we just, you know, how we can participate in society. Like, we don't want to be held back and we don't want to be in that box. So I just think that through building a relationship, um, you'll see that we share a lot more in common with each other than we do have differences. The only way you're going to know those commonalities and understand what connects us 
is through investing in relationships. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, um, Mandanara, there's, there's, my children are banging at the door. Uh, there yeah. are, I have so many questions, but I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for your work and that you would take the time to talk to me tonight. And um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a wonderful place to wrap up because we're, I think. How long fun. did it take though, Matthew? How long did it take for this to happen? Let your listeners know. A long time, a long time. Yeah, a very long time. But can I just say, Mandanara, the full credit to your team, everybody that I have spoken to or received email correspondence with from your team have been wonderful and professional and I don't know what you're doing there but the culture you have is amazing and so please um please take that as some wonderful positive feedback it's taken a long time but it's well worth the wait and I I will be continuing to follow your brilliant work and 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 please keep it up and yeah thank you for taking Uh, the time I love it and can you please pass my love to your beautiful wife, because if it wasn't for her, I could tell you now that all of her advice yeah. um, with with literally launching Black Magic Woman podcast, her genius in the area of marketing and yeah. promoting Black Magic Woman and being able to really, from the first moment that we launched it, from the first social media post, your wife wrote that for me. <laughs> So she helped me literally start off and build those foundations really professionally um, that I look back now and I look at the Instagram and how it all looks and I was like, man, we look pretty deadly, but people don't realise it. You know, I turn up, I'm not the person that does this, I'm not the person that writes the post and I'm not the person that gets it all out there to, to keep the listeners, you know, downloading and, and tuned in. Yeah. So um, Aziza, your wife, was was part of my journey to start my Black Magic Woman journey. So give her my love and let her know that I'm very grateful that um, she came into my life at the time where Black Card was going nowhere and I launched Black Magic Woman. And now Black Magic Woman, and she probably is thinking the same thing, like, man, this is, like, really taken off. So... Yeah. yeah, give her my love, please. Yeah, I will definitely. And it was so lovely to see her. Um, <laughs> my kids are giggling. It's, it's so lovely to, she really came alive during that project. And she's so passionate about telling stories that matter and telling them in a way that upholds their their significance and their beauty. And, and seeing her come alive doing that project was really wonderful. So uh, so thank you. And I, um, Mandanara, I cannot wait for a, for a round two and I will be uh, very closely following your work. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Much love to you, Matthew. And have a good evening. And I would say, you know, if I could say one thing to each and every one of the, the people that are listening, yeah. if you can, try and find Indigenous podcasters, First Nations podcasters, First Nations media, newspapers, online media, First Nations, Twitter handles, LinkedIn pages, and literally that's the way that you can start kind of dipping your feet in and trying to find out, you know, who's in this space and what can you learn from them. So there's a lot of us out there doing this great work and I don't want to take all the credit, so thank you. Thank you, Mandana. I appreciate your time and I'll uh, hopefully talk to you at some point in the future. No worries. Take care.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.